to make the men's meeting easier for the men, my suggestion would be to meet here at the church and then figure out who you're going to go with and then go. So meet here at the church and then figure out who you're going to go out with and then go somewhere else because because if you don't make that decision today, then you're not going to know what to do on Wednesday. And then Wednesday is going to be like, man, I didn't know who to go with. I texted people, but text messaging has now become the most formal form of communication. Jesus texted too, but he just knew what people was thinking, so he just said stuff out loud. So since I know, I feel like the spirit is here, since I know that some of the dudes are here are going to find a way to not do it. Meet here at 7.30, 7.30, and then figure out who you're going to hang out with and then go somewhere else. Because everyone doesn't know where everyone lives. And honestly, we're new, you know, there's a lot of newer people here, so everyone doesn't know everyone, all right? So guys, meet here at 7.30, and then go. Pick the guys you want to hang with, get to know, and then go out and do that. Having said that, in the spirit of that, I have in my possession three gift cards that I'm giving to anyone who is going to lunch with someone today that they just met. They're going to hang out and get to know. So I have three. <laughs> Since you know her name, you're disqualified. That doesn't count. <laughs> so it has to be, I have three cards. If, if no one comes to me, I'm giving them back to Donna. We'll try this again next week. I got three cards in my possession, gift cards, that if you are, if you are, with, last week, what was said last week was not a part of just a sermon. It's a part of the life of our church. So we're not talking about hanging out and getting to know people. What we're going after is the impulse to, to prize awkwardness and it being awkward to introduce yourself to people. We're saying let's, let's acknowledge that it can be awkward to talk to people to get to know them and introduce yourself on a Sunday context. And the reason why it's awkward, because it's, it's hard to go up to people. And let's be honest, it's hard to want people to come up to you. But typically what happens is, in a context like this, we'll, we'll laugh together, we'll sing together, we'll pray, we'll talk. But then after church, you don't know where to go. You'll see people just sporadically looking around, not sure who to talk to. Because it is. It's, it's challenging, especially when you don't know as many people, to walk up to a group of people and talk to those people and introduce yourself. It just seems weird. But for the sake of applying verses like Philippians 2.4, that each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, that let's embrace the fact that it is awkward to meet new people, even in church. Even if you've been going to the church for a while, there's generational awkwardness. There's, uh, I, and I, I'm, I'm not, guys, I'm not going to Starbucks. So that's a different conversation. <laughs> but so y'all meet at your own risk. Um, but I, but I would say, uh, I would say, I would say seriously, uh, after church, this is not just something that we did last Sunday, but it's part of what we're trying to be about. That's one of our values and we connect with each other. We love one another and so forth. All right. Having said that three gift cards in my pocket, they're either yours or they're going back to Donna. So whatever you want to do. And I need to see the person you're going to lunch with. I'm from now. I need to see the person you're going to lunch with. They'll be like, hey, I'll take two of those, man. I'm like, where's the person? Well, I'm going to find somebody. We'll find them and come to see me together, and then I will give you each one. You know, what? If, if I was only one body part, I'd be a hip. So I just want you to know I'm hip. 
Y'all can take that if you want. You can use that. You don't even got credit me. Just take that. I ain't even tripping. You can have that. If I was one body part, I'd be a hip. I'm hip. So I need to see you. Yep. You can take that. Use it. Tweet it. No credit necessary. We know what's going on around here. All right. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. If you have a Bible or a Bible, if you, do you, does anyone need a Bible? Does anyone need an actual Bible? Doesn't have one. You don't have to be embarrassed about that. It happens. If you locked your keys in the car, it's okay to say you need a Bible today. All right. Everyone has a Bible? Okay, one. Get one Bible, please. Can someone get one Bible? Thank you. Thank you, Herb. Deacon Herb. Thank you, sir. Anyone else need a Bible? No shame in your game. Too legit to quit. Gang, 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 gang. All right. All right. Romans chapter 2. Between us. This is actually, to me, this, there are times when you stumble across certain Bible passages that, at least for me, they remind me of aspects of my childhood. And this passage did just that. Every once in a while, I feel like it's good to, to think about things that you experienced at different points of your life that were astonishing to you. And one of the things that I remember that was one of the most astonishing things I'd ever seen, I was probably about seven to eight years old, it was the most amazing thing, not necessarily in a good way, but I just couldn't believe it. It was the first time I saw a sucker punch. Now, many of you don't know it. I'm sure most people know what that is, but a sucker punch is when two people are in close proximity talking, and one of them doesn't know that the other one intends to punch them. And so I was about seven or eight years old in my neighborhood, and I'm watching this, and these two guys were talking. And it started off as being funny, and then it turned into an argument. And then one guy, I thought something was up, but I was like, nah, these guys know each other. So one of the guys, this is, and this is common, if you, if you, I wouldn't recommend this, but if you go on YouTube and watch Sucker Punches, it's, it's the same thing. You'll see it in all, this is exactly how it goes down. Two people are talking, and the one that's going to throw the punch will do this. This is across the board. He'll do this. Or she'll, unfortunately. He'll do this. They'll look away like they're not going to do nothing. Bam! You don't even see it coming. The person gets hit, and all of a sudden, is there all the chaos is going on. And if you're from my neighborhood, they'd be like, let them fight. Let them fight. Let them fight. And I was astonished because, one, it happened so fast. So I had two thoughts immediately. Wow, that looks like it hurt. That was my first thought. My second thought was, I never want that to happen to me. Never. Never, never. I would rather lose a fight than get sucker punched. Because the comeback, the, you get so caught off guard that it's hard to kind of come back from that. Well, this passage today is the first sucker punch in Romans. This passage is like a sucker punch. Because Paul goes from in chapter 1, of those of us who are familiar with the content of chapter 1, know that Paul is introducing himself to this church. And he's giving this theological 
uh, a very doctrinal, very theological introduction. And then he moves to this, this longing, this brotherly affection, this desire to be in relationship. Like Paul hasn't even met these people, but because they're Christians, he, he's excited to be with them. So he's saying stuff like, I can't wait to, to come be with you and to, to impart some spiritual gift and to be mutually encouraged by you. And he's, he's telling this church that, the, that there, the fact that there is a church in the, in the city of Rome is a great encouragement to believers everywhere. So this, if they're reading this letter, they're like, man, this is fascinating. They're encouraged by this letter. We were encouraged by the words of Paul. And then he goes in to explain that his desire is to preach the gospel and that he's not ashamed to do so. And then he goes into this, this explanation that many people think he's describing the, the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world. And he goes into this list of, of how, on one level, how is the sinfulness that you see in your city, how does that come about? Why is there idol worship? Why do the Romans and the Greeks and, and different people, why do they worship all these things? Different creatures and mankind and each other. Why is that happening? And so he begins to explain to them why it's happening. And if they're reading the letter, they're like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. They're encouraged because Paul is saying, hey, I can't wait to hang out with you guys. I can't wait to get that gift card from Kurt. We going out when I get there. He says all these wonderful things, and then he says this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I quote, reading from the CSB, he says this, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge one another, you condemn yourself. Since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you really think that anyone of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Bam! Where is this coming from? What happened to the, I can't wait to be with you guys? I'm so excited to be with you guys. I can't wait. The, the world is buzzing because there is a church. You exist. Can't wait to hang with you from that to you hardened, unrepentant sinners. You're judging people for things that you do? Where in the world does that come from? Paul doesn't even know this church. He hasn't been there yet. 
So where does this come from? If they're reading this letter, they are wonderfully encouraged by the content of chapter 1, and they go through it, and they're reading it, and they're looking at the list of sinfulness from, from verses 18 to 32. And then all of a sudden, they, they turn the parchment. They didn't have pages like the way we do. They, they look at this scroll or whatever, and then bam, they get hit. Well, why does he hit them? Let's pray and find out. Father, I'm using an analogy of a sucker punch, not to minimize your word at all, but just to communicate the, the shock. A punch unexpected shocks the person who gets hit. It, it, it stumbles them. It knocks them off guard. It was unexpected. It was unplanned. It was, you weren't able to prepare for this. And all of us, in different ways, we may not have experienced physical sucker punches, but we've all been hit by circumstances that perplex us, that knock us off guard, that cause us to stumble. And in some cases, that are hard to recover from. So today, as I, as I go through this passage and communicate what I believe is faithful from what you've revealed to me, where it is faithful, Lord, may it apply to those who are listening. Where it is not true, then may it be forgotten by those who are listening. In and of itself, there's no personality, no teaching style, no giftedness, no, no charisma, none of those things make any difference in the heart of those listening. The only thing that does is your spirit. So I pray that where it, what is true here, that you would impress upon our hearts. And what is not true may, forget out of, may leave out of our minds. May they hear a better sermon this morning that I'm able to teach because of your grace. In your name we pray, amen. So what's happening here? Well, let me give you a couple of thoughts on what people, who, who people think he is talking to, all right? Because this seems very bipolar, to use our today's language. This seems very bipolar. Wow, love you guys. You guys are getting judged. That would be a temptation to me. I know it would. Hey, brother, I just want to encourage you. Thank you for all the work you're doing. You're going to hell, by the way. Uh, huh? So here's a couple of theories. The first theory is that in chapter 1, Paul is addressing Gentiles and explaining to them sort of, sort of the plight of those who are non-Jewish in many ways, particularly in verses 18 through 32, that's who people, a lot of people think he's talking to Gentiles. And then when he gets to chapter 2, he's talking to the Jews primarily. And in many ways, that's kind of what Paul does in other letters. So it makes sense because he's writing often to mixed congregations. And sometimes he wants to address, which he'll even do this in this letter. There are times like in chapter, certain chapters, he's definitely addressing non-Jewish people in the church. And then there are times he's addressing the Jews directly. 
So he does that. It's not outside of Paul, inspired by God to write these words to address particular people. I think you do the same thing in preaching when you start highlighting categories. You understand that everyone's not going to fall in the same boat, so you try to hit as much as you can, recognizing that this is still God's word and everyone can apply what's being said. So some people think he's talking to different people. So in chapter 2, he's referring to the Jews because later on in this chapter, he referenced, so if you call yourself a Jew, so it seems like that's who he's talking to. Another theory is this is sort of a philosophical diatribe where, where Paul is not necessarily talking to anyone. It's what we would call like a straw man's argument in a sense today, where he is, he is hypothetically talking to an individual so that he can critique some of the character and some of the lack of theology that people may believe, not calling anyone out per se, but just highlighting an individual. So it's a philosophical diatribe, if you will, sort of a, a strong correction, but it's not aimed at an individual person. It's almost aimed at someone imaginary. So like back in the 80s, rap music, when they used to always talk about, you a sucker MC, and I'm better than you, and nobody knew, who are you talking about? Who's the Zugga MC? Like, who are you referring to? It was just like, it was this imaginary person that was in your mind, and that's what people think Paul is talking to. So that's why, if you have like an ESV translation or some other translations, it might say, oh man. Therefore, you, oh man. Like, it's not necessarily talking to a, it's just talking to this, whoever thinks this way among you, in a sense. That's what people think he's talking about. Either one of those could be true. I think what matters more than even that necessarily, because we're 2,000 years removed from who the letter was initially written to, what matters is it's the word of God and it applies to us. So the question isn't necessarily who is Paul talking to? The question is, is he talking to me? Is the question that we have to ask. Is God talking to me? Is he talking to me? And here's what he says in verse 1. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge one another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now, it's we, I say this whenever we get to a passage that uses the word therefore, so I'll repeat this again because it's worth being repeated. Whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, it's basically translate that in your mind to be because of all that I just said, because of everything that was said prior to what I'm before therefore, this is the result for you. And the way you figure out, well, how do I know what he's talking about? What I typically do is I look for the, the previous therefore, if there is one. Okay, so the previous therefore before chapter 2 verse 1 is beginning at verse 24. So the previous therefore then would be the eight verses in between chapter, chapter 1, 24 to verse 32. And in that he, he talks about God delivering over people to the desires of their hearts because people are rejecting him. He talks about delivering people over to disgraceful passions. He talks about delivering people over to a corrupt mind, and he's listing all of these particular sins that people are doing. And as they're reading this letter or having this letter read to them, make no mistake, 
make no mistake, that as they're hearing this list of sins, living in a crazy city like Rome, that they're able to be like, yep, yep, my neighbor does that, yep. You remember Tom and them from up the way? Yeah, they do that. You're able to just name all this stuff. You can think of different places, different marketplaces where they promote this. So as they're reading this long list of serious sins, don't think for a moment that they're not evaluating the culture that they're in and thinking, yep, God's definitely going to judge these people. Yep. And God knows that. It is the natural. You know what's funny? We do the same thing. Is it not the natural temptation when you hear someone walked into a school and shot up all these people for you to be like, man, that dude is crazy. What is wrong with him? It's the natural temptation to hear about sin in the media, whether a politician or someone famous, and to just self-righteously judge what they're doing. And maybe even make the connection that they deserve the consequences of what they get. In fact, our culture is so used to doing this that the premise of being innocent until proven guilty no longer exists. As soon as you read a headline and you the article about it, we presume that they're guilty. And even if they're considered innocent, it's hard to even believe that. This is a culture. This isn't foreign to us. We do this too. It's easy to hear about what's happening and be like, man, people are wild. Or however we want to describe it. And the language in this verse is so fluid that there's a distinction that's easy to miss. He says, therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge one another, you condemn yourself. It's fluid language. So the question is, when you get to verse 2, he says this. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Okay. God's judgment on people who do such things is based on truth. So that creates a, a dichotomy then. Why is God's judgment based on truth? And then again, mine wouldn't be. Like if I, if I see, if I know someone did something and it's true that they did it and I'm able to articulate that they did that, that's true that they did that. So why is God's judgment based on truth? And by default, Paul's saying this is to say, your judgment's not based on truth, only God's is. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. But by default, ours is not. But it's true that people do certain things. Even if I do the same thing that you do, it's still true that you do it from my evaluation of you, even if I do it. So why then is God's standard, his the only one that's true, even if it's true that you do it, even if I do it? So the real question then is, what kind of judgment is he talking about? What kind of judgment is God communicating through Paul that's of great concern to him that people in this church were doing and people in this church 
may be done. What's the judgment then that he is talking about? Well, there's two ways I want to explain that. The first is in the passage. Let's look again at verses 1 through 2, 1 and 2. Here's the first way, and there's going to be one outside of this passage I want us to briefly look at. Here's the first way. Let's look at this again. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. Listen to the language here. For when you judge one another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. So what he says here is that when you judge someone, you are condemning yourself. You condemn yourself. So here's what he's saying. Listen, when you do the same things, you're not condemning them. You're condemning yourself. You're condemning yourself when you do that. So the judgment that he's talking about is condemning other people. It's not just a simple evaluation where Jesus said, judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. It's condemning other people, condemning them. He has in mind eternal destination. He's not talking about judging a tree by the fruit that it bears. Sometimes that's being faithful. We're supposed to bring correction to one another, right? Well, the only way you can bring correction is if you observe that there needs to be correction had, right? That's how we encourage each other. So he's not talking about your observations of people can't happen. He's talking about condemning. He's talking about condemning people to hell. And that's significant. And this is why God's judgment is brought up. So he says, you're condemning yourself when you do that because you do the same things. Verse 2, we know that God's judgment, when God condemns people who do such things, it's based on truth. Based on truth. So then what is the standard of truth then in this passage? The standard of truth is that the person who can condemn hasn't committed the sins that he's condemning people for. So the standard of truth then is that God has not committed any sin. Therefore, he's the only one who has the moral authority to condemn anyone to eternal judgment. He's the only one who has that authority. God can condemn people because he hasn't committed a sin. But when we condemn people, then we're condemning ourselves because we sin. And sometimes in the exact same ways. Maybe not the same action, but the same root. So why is the standard of truth sinlessness? Why is that the standard? Okay, yeah, I get it. God hasn't sinned. He rightly is the one that can condemn people. Why is that the standard of truth? Let's leave the passage just for a moment. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. But I want to read you just two things. From, one from Revelation 12, 7 through 10. This is what it says. This is, a, this is a passage in Revelation. It's about this war breaks out in heaven. I want to read to you what it says here. In verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. 
So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, this is 1210, the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before our God has been thrown down. Here's what this passage is saying. Satan is judging, accusing, condemning believers before God. And yet he's done the worst out of all of us. So how dare you go before the throne of God and accuse us when we fall into sin? You know, you get this picture that it's just the devil is like, look, there he is. He did it again. Look. And he did it again. And she did it again. He's getting reports from all over. His demons are saying, look at what these people are doing. He did it again. Isn't this person a Christian? Isn't he redeemed? Didn't he pray and ask you not to do this? I thought he wasn't going to do this again. Remember, he was crying at the men's meeting the other night, and he was saying, you know, I'm going to do this. Look at 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 this. And God is saying, you have no moral authority. You have no moral authority to accuse anyone, Satan, because you do worse than all of them. Here's the connection. When you condemn people for sins, especially if you do some of the same, you are imitating Satan. So it is fundamentally satanic to act as if we have a moral authority to determine a person's destination. A couple weeks ago, there was a conference on Martin Luther King. And it wasn't about him necessarily, but there were things about what he was talking about in terms of racial harmony. And there were pastors, many great theologians, some of them are personal friends of mine. And the backlash against Martin Luther King is ridiculous. People are like, man, this guy was a womanizer. He committed adultery. He denied the Trinity. He denied all this stuff. I mean, the, the sense is, why are you celebrating a man who's not a believer? He was wrong on the gospel. He was wrong on this and all of this stuff. Why are you celebrating this man? He's not a believer. So the assumption is that he's not with the Lord right now. Let me go on a sidebar real quick. If that's true, then shame on the church that God had to use an unbeliever to bring godly conviction to the world so that we could be more harmonized and have a church that looks like this. So that doesn't mean anything to me. That's more shame on all the people who had good doctrine. Because where was that at to make this happen? That's a different sermon. Back to this sermon. <laughs> That's what people are saying. He's not a believer. He's not with the Lord. That's dangerous. You have no idea what happened the last couple days of his life. You have no idea what happened. If a thief on the cross can be forgiven... Come to worldview. The only one who has the moral authority to condemn people 
are people who are sinless. This is what Jesus was getting at in John 8. Remember this? The adulterous woman comes in and the, and the Pharisees bring her. And they say, teacher, she was committing adultery. The Mosaic law means we have to stone this woman. What do you say? They were trying to trick Jesus. This is the first chapter, the first couple of verses of John 8. They're trying to trick Jesus because if he says stoner, then people will be outraged by it and no one will believe what he's saying. And then if he doesn't say, doesn't say stoner, then it's like you're disobeying the Mosaic law. You're a heretic. And what does Jesus say? Let he among you with no sin cast the first stone. That's what he said. He ain't falling to the trap. He said, this is what he was saying. You have no moral authority to condemn her because you do the same things. The same idolatry that leads her to have sex with men that are not her husband is the same idolatry that leads you to reject who, who I am. You have no more authority. So if you want to cast the first stone or you want to condemn her, you can't do it unless you have sin, unless you don't have it. What do they all do? They walk away. The only one who can condemn, who has the moral authority to do so, is the one who hasn't sinned in those ways. This is what makes the cross significant. This is why Jesus lived a perfect life, because if Jesus had sinned one time, he would lack the moral authority to take the punishment for our sin because he would be punished for his own. This is why no ordinary human being could be the savior. There's no one who could do it. It had to be Jesus. He had to live a sinful life because that gives him the moral authority to now bring forgiveness where it's necessary and condemnation where necessary. Had he sinned one time, he would not have the moral authority to condemn or, or forgive anyone. When you commit sin, you lack the moral authority to condemn. I'm not talking about evaluate and bring correction. I'm not talking about that. That's not what the scripture is saying here. I'm not talking about we have to help each other, spur one another on to love and good works. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about pronouncing people's eternal destination. And that happens way more frequently than we think. But if it were just that, that'd be one thing. But it's also... The lack, the lack of, the lack of self-awareness. The lack of self-awareness. This is actually the main concern that God is bringing up in this passage. He's saying, you do the same things as them. So the people who are Jewish, as they hear this list being read of all the sins that are happening, they're thinking, hey, we're the chosen people of God, so we're good. And if they're Gentiles, they're like, hey, well, we're now, we have faith in Christ now, so we're good. God's grace forgives us. True. But what he's saying here is God's grace doesn't forgive you to continue to do the same thing and think there are no consequences because somehow God's grace will overlook that. We're not talking about struggling with sin and temptation. We're talking about, he's talking about practicing. You're doing the same stuff. So I want you to hear me. I'm not talking about 
having issues that we all have that actually grieve us, that we're fighting with, that we're praying about, we're asking people to help us with, and victory takes longer than we thought it would. We're talking about the willful, active pursuit of sin as if the grace of God covers that with no consequences. Grace is not that amazing. It's not that amazing. And this is what he's saying. Look at verse 3. He says, do you really think any of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? Paraphrase, grace is not that amazing. You cannot look at people who are not saved, condemn them to hell, and you do the same things and think that you're not going to be judged by God. You actually know way better than them. You see, their biggest issue is not that he committed a murder or he's angry or he did this or did that. Their biggest issue is they need Jesus. But you have Jesus. So what say you? This is a sobering question. This is a sucker punch. Because the people he's directly talking to most certainly believe that God will punish the non-believers for their sin. But this question makes them, this church, and this church turn the question from external to internal. God is saying, don't worry about them. Don't worry about them. Go from here to here. I'm talking about you. Do you think honestly that my grace is for the active pursuit of disobedience and that nothing's going to happen to you, that when you die, I can't wait to see you and there'll be no consequences for that. What makes this question tough is it's not even really a question. Not in the traditional sense. This isn't a yes or no question. This is a uh-oh question. This question wasn't designed. He didn't ask it so people would be like, yeah, I think he will. No, nah, I think he won't. This isn't a, hey, who you think is going to win tomorrow? Man, I think, no, this is not that type of question. This is the New Testament's version of you are the man. In 2 Samuel 12, David, who had sex with another man's wife and had him killed, the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells him this story that a man was coming into the city and a rich man who had all these lambs and sheep decided to take the one little lamb from this poor guy and, give, and kill that lamb and serve that to the man instead of all that he had. And when David hears it, the scripture says he's angry, he's indignant. And he says, that man who did that deserves to die. And the prophet says, you are the man. 
This is the New Testament. You are the man if you do this. If you are condemning people, if you do this. This is not a question. This is a statement of fact with a question mark at the end of it. And it's not intended to be answered verbally, but to be evaluated internally. Because the answer is, of course not. It's an obvious question. Do you think any of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same will escape God's judgment? Be uncomfortable. Be uncomfortable. Grace sometimes is uncomfortable. It is not just everything's good. It's, it's let me make sure. Or if I do this, let me stop. Because we lack the moral authority to condemn people to hell and to pronounce that. Especially when it's sinful and we do it too. And then the chief of conviction questions is verse 4, at least in this passage. He says this, do you or do you, so let me read verse 3 then verse 4, do you really think that any of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you will escape judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? This isn't a question either. This is a conviction statement. Because you know what he's saying? When you condemn other people knowing that you're sinful, then you essentially despise the grace of God. You hate the grace of God. And this is important because none of us think that way. We're all, we're all trained well enough to know we ain't going to say we hate the grace of God or we're presuming on God's grace or we're not tripping or however you want to say it. None of us are going to talk like that. People will look at you like you're crazy. He's not talking about talking like that. He's talking about living like that. You condemn other people to hell when you're sinful too? He's saying here you hate the restraint of God. You hate his patience. You ignore his kindness. You are overlooking the fact that the reason why God has not destroyed you is so that you can repent. His kindness is not a weakness. When I was a kid, my mom used to always say stuff like that. I didn't understand what it meant. I did it after about the 17th time I heard it. But I remember when she would always say, like, if I give you an inch, you take a mile. Or, 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 or she'd say, you mistake my kindness for a weakness. Like, I, she'd let me go out. I'd be in trouble for something. You got to stay in the house on the weekend. She'd break down and feel bad for me because I was watching, like, Jerry Lewis movies on DC 20, little black and white TV. It's watching these Jerry Lewis, the Nutty Professor, and all them with these weird Jerry Lewis movies. My mom just felt bad, so she let me go out. I'm like, I'm gonna let you go out. 
This was like almost every Sunday for like three years of my life. I'm going to let you go out. You're not surprised. I'm going to let you go out, but you be in this house at 4 o'clock. I'm like, Ma, thank you so much. Thank you, Ma. You be in this house by 4 o'clock. That's how you thank me. 426, keys in the door. Ma, my bike got a flat tire. Whatever it was. He said, you, I give you an inch, you take a mile. You mistake my kindness for weakness. Do you take God's kindness for weakness? Do you honestly think that the Lord is just sitting there while people who profess to believe in him pursue sin are not tripping, not making an effort to go after these things? And then God's like, hey, you believed in Jesus. So believing in Jesus means we go after those things. Not that we make excuses because grace is this big pillow that allows us to just rest. Grace gives us the fortitude to fight. It gives us the fortitude to sucker punch our own selves so that we don't just give in. There are people in this room right now that are not tripping. They're not tripping. And this passage is from God, not from me. I'm going through the book. The warning is from God. If you persist in this while you talk about what other people do, because people don't know what you do, but God knows what you do. If you persist in the excuses and judgments of other people, then you will stand before God and not see the father that you thought you were going to see, but the judge that you so thought was not possible. These are God's words. I'm just telling you what he said. This is serious. This isn't minimize the gospel this isn't taking away genuine grace. This is going after what we today call cheap grace. This isn't talking about weaknesses and struggles that we have, that we give in at times, but we know it's talking about, listen, there's a difference. To oversimplify this, there's a difference between sinning and feeling bad about it and struggling with it and sinning and just not tripping like, man, it is what it is. There's a difference. But what this should do for those of us who are believers is gut check us. This is a gut check to make sure, hey, are we still fighting a good fight? Or are we just going to church? Are we still fighting the good fight? Are we still sacrificing for the grace of God and for the glory of God? Or are we just making excuses, just biding our time until he comes back and we're expecting to just be with him and to have a suffer-free eternity? Are we still fighting the good fight? Or are we just so critical of others? This is a culture of cynicism. That's essentially what a troll means. A troll is just a serious cynic. This is why I never to this day, years ago I stopped doing this. I don't post anything sentimental on Facebook anymore. Never. 
because people will put a snarky comment underneath it or a meme. And it'll be funny and all of it. Memes are just pictures of arrogance most times. They're just sarcastic pictures. And they're funny. I like them too. But when it's something serious, I've seen people really say stuff that I thought, wow, I wouldn't have put that on Facebook. That's kind of like what they call a TMI. <laughs> I wouldn't have put that on Facebook. But then the responses are just mockery. And my thought is like, wow, man, do you have a church that you can actually go to people and talk about this with? I've seen people who are just being, trying to say something, they just get mocked and attacked. And it's like, golly. There's this meme that says, it says, to prove that everyone just likes to argue, has a picture of a book that says, this is a book. And then people would be like, no, it's not. And it's just like that. It's like it proves the point. And now people do it to be facetious, but the point is taken. This is the culture we live in. Do not think you're not affected. You're affected. I'm affected. We're infected, but we're trying to push back. Church is the, is the, fights the bacteria. The reading of the word fights the bacteria. Fellowship with other believers fights the bacteria. Prayer fights the bacteria. Meditating on scripture fights the bacteria. Sharing the gospel with other people fights the bacteria. Resisting temptation fights the bacteria. And not judging other people and condemning them. I have no idea what Martin Luther King is. I honestly don't care. Because it's not my place to care. God used them for however he wanted to use them. I'm just trying to be with the Lord when it's all said and done. Do you despise the grace of God? If you are persisting in sin and judging others for doing that, then you do. You actually are here for other reasons then. You're here for other reasons. Now, this text is primarily talking about people who judge others. Even though they do the same things, I think it's still applicable for us, even if we're not judging others. Like, don't leave here thinking, well, I don't really condemn other people, so I'm good. No, leave here thinking, hey, am I despising the grace of God by, by not, not taking seriously my own self? Don't leave here thinking, okay, well, I don't really condemn anybody to hell, man. I don't really do that. Good. Good. Don't. But we all have to just evaluate and say, man, do I do that? On different occasions this past week, as I read this, I would just stop and be like, man, do I do this? And the Lord was like, you want me to answer that question? <laughs> like, yeah. Here's an example. Here's an example. Here's an example. No, I was just, here's an example. Here's an example. Here's an example. What I don't want for me and for anyone in this room 
is, is verse 5. Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. If you judge other people, condemn them, when you do the same, it is not a genuine expression of faith. It's a hard, unrepentant heart. And the only thing left is the storing up of wrath in the day of wrath. Unless, unless you take verse 4 and apply that and say, Lord, I'm guilty. Help me not to do this. Please forgive me for the times I do this. Self-righteous. I'm hypocritical. Thank you, Jesus, that you obeyed perfectly on my behalf. Therefore, you are the only one that has the moral authority. I, I carry no stones in my pockets. I have nothing to throw at anyone except for myself. Please forgive me and help me, remind me by your spirit not to do this anymore because this happens frequently. It happens with your spouses. It happens with your children. It happens with your coworkers. where we just judge other people and we sin just as much or more than them and we're just blind to that as if, as if God is like, yeah, make sure, yeah, tell them about their sin happens all the time and members in this church do it consistently and I am among you the Lord is saying stop looking out the window and start looking in the mirror because when you do that when we do this we despise the grace of God and so Paul on behalf of God who knows that the temptation for people, this church in particular, and anyone to hear this list of sins and be like, and these people, man, they, they're going to hell, or they in hell, or whatever that is, to say, ah, ah, nah, fam. If I'm hip, imagine that God's hip. You do this too. So I'm going to bring this up now. Let's deal with this now because I got a whole lot more to say. But in order for you to hear what I got to say, you need to make sure that you're not doing this. And I think a lot of us, if we humbled ourselves, would realize, I do this more often than I thought. Some of my most challenging moments with individuals can be rooted in some of this. By God's grace, may this not define our church at all in any way, shape, or form, from, from pastors on down to anyone. We're all members of the church, and we're all, all of us who are members of this church. May this not define any of us, because this is a dangerous culture, and this is not neutral. We live in a society that promotes it, so we have to be actively pushing back against it. There's no neutral ground here. Father, we just pray to you and ask you for, to allow your spirit to bring about appropriate conviction where necessary. 
It is easy to, to do this. It's easy to pronounce judgment on people, condemn them, especially those who we don't know, people who are more in the public sphere. It's easy to do that and not see it when we do it with them. I think it's even harder than when we, don't, when we do it with one another. People we've gone to church with a long time that have habits and patterns that are still there that bother us or close family members, spouses, children, siblings, co-workers, just so aware of what other people do. We want grace from you for our sins. Help us to have grace for others for their sins and to be faithful to to do the most awkward work of developing friendships that lead to conversions. As we evaluate ourselves in this church, Lord, help us to, to fight against applying that in even the most subtle ways. In a few moments after we take communion and we break for lunch, I pray that you would continue to allow us, as we did last week, to specifically be looking to meet and talk to people that we haven't before. I'm not even talking about just new, mem new people who raise their hand, but anyone. As Paul, on behalf of you, communicated his love for believers who he didn't even meet yet, I pray that we would emulate that on some level. So whether people take these gift cards from me or not, Lord, I pray that they would take to heart Take to heart the responsibility to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Help us to meet and, and press through the awkwardness of, instead of judging people who are different than us, help us to get to know those people because we'll find out that we have much more in common than we thought. So may that continue this afternoon. your name we pray. Amen.